This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 63 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, some sage advice to cement our newfound lower spending habits that were enforced through the lockdown. We have research by UCT Professor Corne van Valbeek, which confirms the cigarette sales ban delivered awful unintended consequences. Great news from the human trials of Oxford University's COVID-19 vaccine, which is also being tested here in South Africa. And undeterred by coronavirus panic, Durbanites, led by Servest founder Kenton Fine, have secured a 3.8 billion rand acquisition of a venerable Dutch IT services group. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. In today's COVID-19 headline, South Africa experienced a ray of hope in its fight against the coronavirus on Tuesday when the officially measured active cases dropped for the first time since the pandemic hit four months ago. Although there were 8,170 new infections registered Tuesday, recoveries on the day were almost 5,000 higher, and this resulted in a decline in the national active infections from 173,500 to 168,300. South Africa's active cases are still the fifth highest in the world, however, and with the virus spreading into previously less affected provinces, experts caution that it is far too soon to celebrate. On the downside, too, the country reported its second highest deaths for any day at 195 Tuesday, although this may also have been distorted through the catching up of significantly underreported mortalities on Sunday and Monday. Progress in reducing death rates through medical treatment advances is clearly evident, however. Gauteng has reported 61% more infections overall, but less than half the mortalities of the Western Cape, where the virus first took hold in South Africa. Some promising developments on the coronavirus vaccine front. In the UK, Oxford University's development team at the Jenner Institute has announced that clinical trials are showing their vaccine does induce the desired reaction from the human immune system. Trials of the Oxford vaccine are also being conducted in South Africa by Wits University. Jenner Institute's director, Professor Adrian Hill, says the vaccine may be available before the end of the year. That's well ahead of most expectations. More on that story coming up. And across the water, our partners at the Wall Street Journal report that the U.S. government today agreed to pay pharma group Pfizer and its partner, BioNTech SE, almost $2 billion to secure 100 million doses of their experimental COVID-19 vaccine, which is intended to be given to Americans free of charge. This vaccine has shown promising preliminary tests in small groups of patients and is set to enter late-stage testing before the end of the month. 
GSH Private Capital, a UK-based investment company run by South Africans, has today become a notable outlier in a near-paralyzed global business environment. The company, led by service founder Kenton Fine, has acquired the 133-year-old Dutch IT services multinational Getronics for almost 4 billion rand. More on the rationale behind the transaction coming up in our interview with the entrepreneur who says he's following Warren Buffett's advice of being greedy when everyone else is fearful. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Guy Channels is an actuary from UCT where he studied. He's also the head of product and the general manager of employee benefits at Discovery. Guy a question that we get asked often from members of the business community is that they are under pressure, they've got retirement savings. Is it a good idea to cash in those retirement savings so that they can at least survive this COVID-19 pandemic crisis? Hi, Alex. Thanks. It is a very real question. No glib answer will do it justice. I'd like to answer it with a few angles because people are in different circumstances who are asking it. The first thing I'd suggest is that you go through the mental exercise of imagining what would I do if I did not have that money? If that money was not an option, what would I do practically? And there's two reasons I would suggest you do that. The one is if you do cash out that money, it will be devastating for your long-term financial future. Not impossible to catch up on that in some circumstances, but extremely hard, you're unlikely to do the things that you would be required to do to catch up on whatever money that you cash out. That's the one reason. But the second reason is you may cash out that money. Once it is over, once you've run out of that money, you may be in the same situation you're in currently, and you'll have to take the steps that you would take if you didn't have that money anyway. So it really is worthwhile, I would suggest, to really think about some severe steps you could take, moving in with your parents or selling a car or something like that, to resist taking that money as long as possible. You guys work a lot on behavioral change. Have you seen changes in saving habits or even spending habits during these uh, months that we've been under lockdown? Well, Alec, you know, I talk about behavior change a lot. I find it very difficult to make behavior change in my own life. And this COVID experience is the first time I have seen dramatic change in my own spending behavior, and it happened without me trying. And therein lies, I think, an incredible opportunity in the dark time that is COVID. And that is that this external event has done for us something that we've all struggled to do since we ever started thinking about trying to save, and that is to curtail our spending to cut out some of the things that are attractive but unnecessary and thereby to create space in your monthly income for saving. Because saving almost never happens as a product of changed income. People experience this time and time again. Your income goes up and so does your spending. Saving happens because you take explicit steps to curtail your spending within uh, whatever income it is that you currently have. And that has been done for us. That is an asset that people now have coming out of COVID, whenever it is that you come out of COVID. You might come out in five years' time where you recover from the income shock you've experienced. If you hold on to the saving and the spending habits that you have been forced into during COVID, you'll be in an incredibly powerful position for your long-term financial future. 
what benefits have you got unexpectedly from this period? I'm not spending on coffees, restaurants. I'm spending much less on transport. I'm not spending on expensive luxuries like alcohol. And then there are a number of other expenditure items that occur because you're out and about. You're in the malls. You're seeing people. You're going to birthday parties. All of that stuff has kind of been forced down. I've experienced a real reduction in my monthly expenses simply because of those of those items. Some of them will not persist beyond COVID automatically. Perhaps transport, you, you'll end up needing to travel back to work again. But some of them can if we choose to maintain those trajectories. So it's just a little bit of focus perhaps, being more mindful about where the benefits have come. We all look at this as at the downside, but at least for your savings... And I know from my own experience, we went to a restaurant for the first time in literally since lockdown on Saturday night. And mm. <laughs> it's a big restaurant. The grill house in Rosebank usually seats 400. They had 45 bookings for the whole night. So it's not just you and I who aren't spending at restaurants Absolutely. anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you think of what you would spend at a night in the grill house. You've become used to it, but it is quite an alarming amount. And you would spend half of that, less than half of that, if you had a great meal at home. And so people have become much more used to enjoying their homes and enjoying uh, kind of spending time at their homes and thereby saving a lot of money. It's like a fringe benefit in a way that (laughs) you're getting that. But what about, just to return to the whole story about cashing in your savings, there are numerous people who believe that the economic consequences of COVID-19 are going to be dire for South Africa. And as a consequence, they just want to get their money out of the country. They want to invest it somewhere far away because they feel they can get a better return. And when they talk about their money, that includes retirement savings. What's the the counter argument to that? Gosh, I suppose their number. The first is that COVID is a global problem, not just a South African one. I know we are closer to the problems in South Africa so they feel more real. But the problems are the same all over the world. Everybody is going to struggle economically emerging out of COVID. The second one, I suppose, is that you really have to be unbelievably bullish to do something like cash in your time and savings to take it offshore. You have to be incredibly bullish on the differential you'll get offshore because you have a large, immediate, guaranteed tax loss that you'll encounter. And the kind of excess returns you have to earn somewhere else is huge before you even start to kind of get dividends on that decision. Maybe the third and final one is that you do have a material exposure to offshore within your retirement savings. Most retirement savings have up to 30% in offshore equities or offshore assets in total. And a lot of our South African bosses doing okay because it's exposed to the global market. And so your assets are more globally diversified then perhaps you've you've realized allied to this is the concern about the reintroduction of prescribed asset requirements is is that something that again is an irrational fear you just never know what's going to transpire the latest thinking that i've seen around this is that prescribed assets is perhaps the wrong term to use for what might transpire what might transpire is something where you create incentives and kind of space within the regulation that governs the way that retirement assets are invested for people to invest in things that also help the country. For example, major infrastructure products or projects, etc., which can 
produce really exceptional, stable inflation beating and linked and beating returns over the long term. And it has been an asset class that has been under invested in by retirement funds because it is difficult to get into and to manage. And if the work is done around those asset classes to make them easier to invest in by retirement funds, they can be exceptional investments for the investees while also providing the capital that the country requires to kind of kickstart its way out of an economic slump. So it's That's all, where I would um, hope we would go. Yeah, It's not all bad news. I would hope so. You know, there obviously are ways to do it in a really heavy-handed way that would be detrimental. I think what we've seen so far is that there's enough debate and enough power on, on all sides of the table for that not to materialize. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Professor Cornet van Valbeek, the Director of the Research Unit on the Economics of Excisable Products at the University of Cape Town. Last time we spoke, you brought out your first report that was soon after lockdown to see how South African smokers had reacted. We're quite a few months into the process now. The first report, I recall you saying that it might have been well intended, but it actually didn't work that well. The second set of research is now telling us that it it really has amplified those errors. Absolutely, and that is exactly what we found. In our first report, we indicated that the prices on average had increased by 90% relative to pre-lockdown. At the moment, the prices on average have increased by 250%. That's the average for the country, but in some provinces, it's substantially more. Specifically in the Western Cape, it's more than 400% more than pre-lockdown. In some other parts of the country, more the northern provinces and Haiping, it's uh, between 150 and 200% more than what it was pre-lockdown. Are they quitting because of this? We asked that question in more detail in this particular report, and we asked specifically, why did you quit? And the main reason why more than 50% of people attempted to quit was because of the price. About 14% of people quitted because they were unable to find cigarettes, and only 11% of people indicated that they attempted to quit because of the ban on smoking. In other words, being a good citizen. And then there were some other minor reasons like health concerns and so on. But more than 50% has to do with the price of cigarettes. That's a jolt. If only 11% of people are law-abiding enough to say we believe the law is a good law, that tells us 89% think it's a dumb law. That's not me saying that. That's what our results are, are suggesting, that many people are simply not taking the regulation of the ban seriously. What we are saying going forward is if the sales ban is going to get lifted, and at some point in time it will be lifted, the market is going to be in complete chaos. And the reason why it's in chaos is that the multinationals that pre-lockdown had a market share of well over 75%, and the local manufacturers had a market share of the remainder of about 20-25%, that is completely reversed. The multinationals have now got a market share in this illicit market of less than 20%. The local manufacturers primarily have got the remainder. Many of them are attached to FITA, but uh, not only. FITA is the Fair Trade Independent Tobacco Association. And uh, there's going to be probably a very, very big price war where the multinationals are wanting to get their market share back, where the new companies are wanting to hold on to their market share. And the way to fight that is by decreasing the prices. So that's going to be seriously bad for 
public health. As prices go down, we know that people are going to smoke more. If prices go up, people smoke less. Yes, it's not very elastic, but at the same time, you do have those negative responses between an increase in the price and consumption. So our view is very much that when the government does lift the ban on the sale of cigarettes, we would argue strongly that the Treasury then significantly increases the excise tax. I'm not going to say to exactly how how much, but a number that sort of rings true is more or less a doubling of the excise tax and would claw back some of the losses that they've incurred or the lack of revenue that they've incurred over the past number of uh, months. And at the same time, it will act as a disincentive for smokers to want to start smoking again. The big proviso on this is, of course, illicit trade. Illicit trade has become much more entrenched over this time period. It's a tragedy. It was already pretty high before we had the lockdown. It was something like 30%, possibly 25 30% in that order. At the moment, it's 100%. So after the sales ban is lifted, it will go back somewhat, but there will still be these distribution channels that have been very much part of the fabric of this industry. So sales has got its work cut out where they really have to then focus on how can they cut back on the illicit trade, which has become so deeply entrenched in the tobacco uh, industry. Dumb question. When Pravin Gordon was fighting state capture, he said to us, join the dots. I'm going to ask you to join the dots for me. How is it that the independents have suddenly got 75% share in what is a 100% illicit market? To be honest, I don't know. FITA, I find it interesting that they were the first tobacco organization to take the minister to court. I think that there's probably a fight within FITA that FITA wants to present itself as an honorable, clean type of organization. It's representing companies. It wants them to be clean and so on. But I don't think that they actually have the control over their members to cut back on illicit trade. The fact that we are seeing all these brands that have been working on the fringes over the last number of years suddenly come to the fore and suddenly becoming the major brands is, is very, very peculiar. One does, does SARS have the capacity to be able to look at, to look at the situation and to be able to actually control the manufacturing that takes place? Of course, since the beginning of May, tobacco companies were allowed to produce. I think that is a particularly crazy idea that you're allowed to produce in principle for the export market. We know from history that the tobacco industry have got a reputation of making those so-called exports disappear into the local market. So clearly something is not well. And the thing that is not well is that we've got this contradictory policy. On the one hand, we don't allow the sales of cigarettes. We're starving the market. The prices are going sky high. On the other hand, we're allowing production to take place, so-called for the export market, and it doesn't take a brilliant person to work out that this is going to cause attention that the tobacco companies will find unable to resist. They want to get into the market because their competitors are getting into the market, and it's time to make lots of hay. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Oxford University scientists say clinical trials of their COVID-19 vaccine in South Africa and elsewhere in the world should help speed up global distribution of the eagerly awaited drug. Just published results of the first phase of the clinical trials in humans 
show that the vaccine delivered the hoped-for immune response in humans. Scientists at Johannesburg's Witts University began human trials with the Oxford vaccine at the end of June. Director of Oxford's Jenner Institute, Professor Adrian Hill, said in an earlier interview with our colleague Linda van Tilburg that a vaccine could be ready this year, while the project lead on the study, Professor Sarah Gilbert, who's included her 21-year-old triplets in the UK clinical trial, said the speed of the vaccine's development had surprised everybody. There are two important findings. One is that the safety profile of the vaccine looks very reassuring, which is good news. And secondly, the immune responses that we have seen, particularly with two doses of the vaccine, are very good indeed. In fact, pretty well everybody responded in the way that we hoped they would triggering both arms of the immune response, not just neutralizing antibodies, which other vaccines induce as well, but also cellular immunity. So that's very good to see and encouraging that this vaccine hopefully will work. Because this is not the only trial going on, we will have data from other sites right around the world. There's a trial already up and running in Brazil, also one in South Africa, and there are plans to work elsewhere as well. In the United States, there'll be a very large trial. So we're not relying on the result from one country. We are looking at different populations around the world for the safety of the vaccine, what immune responses we see there, but most importantly, how quickly can we figure out whether this vaccine really is effective and reduces COVID. And there is manufacturing activity because we know that if the vaccine is shown to work, we're going to be asked for not thousands, not millions, but tens, hundreds, maybe thousands of millions of doses for this vaccine to be deployed as quickly as possible. If we can get an effective vaccine, we will be able to vaccinate very large numbers of people because we can manufacture this vaccine at scale. And that will allow people to get back to normal life, hopefully, after they are vaccinated so that people come out of lockdown, don't need to wear masks and economic activity can be restored back to hopefully near normal levels. I think the the speed at which we've been able to work has really surprised everybody, even those of those of us who are working on it every day. It's helped a lot by the fact that we've done a lot of this kind of thing before. We've never done it anything like as fast as we have done now, but that's because we're able to draw on the experience. The people working on this trial know all the different stages that have to be done, so we're able to look ahead to the next challenges and be planning for those while we're working on the current studies. So we have a large team of people that has got larger as the trials have gone on with different expertise that's needed to cater for all aspects of the trial. And together, we've worked really hard to get everything done to the highest quality standards, but also as fast as we can do it. We have to wait for the infections to happen in the trial before we can know if the vaccine's working. And in the UK, if we were only doing a trial in the UK, that would probably take quite a long time because transmission is very low now, which is a good thing for those of us who are living in the UK, but it's not a good thing if you want to know if the vaccine's working. So we have been working with some very experienced clinical trial sites in other countries, 
um, in Brazil and in South Africa. There are clinical study teams there who can also deliver very high quality studies and they are starting to run studies based in Rio, in Sao Paulo and in Johannesburg where the infection rate is much higher at the moment. And there, there is a greater chance that they will see the number of infections uh, in the trial participants to determine the vaccine efficacy in a much shorter time than we'll be able to do that in the UK. So we're very glad to have some um, good partners to work with in other countries who will be able to get this result, which then would apply for the whole world, not just the countries in which the vaccine trials are done. We know there's an immune response to the vaccine and it's the kind of immune response we're looking for. We don't know how big that immune response needs to be. And um, it may be that uh, quite a low level immune response could completely protect against coronavirus vaccine. And that's going to mean that it's very easy to develop a vaccine against it. But it may mean that we have to have a really strong response against coronavirus and we have to give more than one dose. And those have to be large doses of the vaccine to get that very strong response. And so that's why we don't know how much we need to do yet to see if the vaccine will protect people. It would be unusual for a vaccine to be 100% effective. Um, some vaccines may only be 50% effective, but can still be very useful if that's what we have. And we also want to know what the level of efficacy is, because then we can think about how we might improve it. Or if it turns out that it's very high right from the very beginning, it may be that we don't need to give such a high dose. And then we would have more vaccine to go around when we come to manufacturing the vaccine for larger numbers of people. But um, it's great to have these milestones, such as the publication of our first clinical trial uh, with very positive results, showing um, that the vaccine is tolerated by the people who are vaccinated with it, that we're getting good immune responses of the right type, the type that we hope to see. This is as far as we could hope to be at this stage in the programme, so we're very pleased to be able to have this paper published and to be able to talk about it now. Well, I was due to speak with Kenton Fine. We seem to do this, Kenton, every two years or so. You today have got a, a very big announcement for a, a group of South Africans getting together to buy a Dutch IT services company for 200 million euros. It's called Jetronics, not a business that would have registered too much in South Africa yet, although does it have a operation here? No, it doesn't. It has a partner actually through its GWA Alliance, the Global Workplace Alliance in over 120 countries globally. And we do have partners in South Africa that we do work with. But yeah, the company is a very interesting business founded in 1887. So what's it, 133 years ago? was at the forefront of the electrification sort of technology back then and over the years eventually in the 70s morphed into a technology business. Because there haven't been that many acquisitions recently or certainly since the virus hit. Somebody told me that we're the only guys doing anything at the moment and through GSH we have one or two other investments which are not as certainly not as active as, as this one other than uh, our service, my service interest in SA. But we are, we, we're busy with a few things but yeah, we are going against the grain a little bit but then again, I guess within my makeup, I am perhaps a little bit of a against the grain sort of guy and uh, Warren Buffett's favorite saying, you know, be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. Perhaps uh, no, I don't quite mean it maybe in that sort of uh, a robust tone, but you, you, get, you get the picture. I think there's an opportunity and we've seen it trading through COVID, so it gives us a degree of comfort, but it shouldn't hold us back for taking a 5, 10, 15 year view. Is that what makes you different in that you are taking a longer term view and seeing through this pandemic's end? 
Well, I think we we need to, Annika. It's a very sad state of affairs, and I think we all realise that you know we haven't seen the end of it yet. It's I think it's unfortunately going to be around for a while longer, but. Again, technology is something that will survive that, uh, will continue to endure. And from a longevity perspective, you know, my record with services is over a very long period of time. And but I don't know what the future holds. We create opportunities and we'll see what comes of it. But uh, I see this opportunity as at least, a, you know, conceptually a five or ten year plus rise in business. I suppose the, the final question here is because nobody else is buying, was this reflected in the price you were able to negotiate? I think that's a fair comment and absolutely a fair assessment because we were able to do a one-on-one negotiation with the with the lender group. It was difficult because you had different parties pulling slightly in different directions, but nevertheless, that's what happened. It wasn't a typical process where you'd go out with, with corporate financiers and put it on the market and go through a tender bidding process and so on. So we had none of that. Plus, we had a degree of, of insight into the business historically. So that definitely helped. And did it help us achieve an entry point for value, which you ordinarily wouldn't achieve? I think it's, yep, I think, you know, candidly, I think it's probably fair to say. I think we've done a, a fair deal. We even perhaps were slightly over generous with some aspects of the business and some aspects of the transaction. But we tended to keep a bigger picture. And, I, you know, that was my view. And I always like to, in transactions, you know, I never want to take the last dime off the table. I think it's fair for both sides to come out right and to come out feeling okay and feeling good. And I think in this case, uh, it's absolutely the, the case. You know, but good value. Make no bones about it for, for sure. I think in ordinary times, this, this business, as we grow our revenues from 300 million north, you know, north that we, we aim at sort of double digit uh, EBITDA margins and uh, multiples attributed to these businesses would be in the order of 10 times. So gives you an indication just off the numbers I've just given you where we see value almost very short term. So, uh, yeah, I think a fair value transaction. When will you know, or how long will it take you to know that it's been a good deal? I guess no one ever knows that until the day that you do something with it. But uh, maybe that's a cautious and conservative route. Look, there's some short-term hard work that needs to be done. There are some efficiencies that, that are currently under implementation Cost productivity exercises and so on. So, but we, yeah, I think once we come through COVID and we have a good idea of what the revenue line's doing, what the underlying profitability is doing, then I think, you know, we'll make our own assessment in terms of comparison market valuations and so on. But I think suffice to say, and it's, it's okay to say at this point that, I, yeah, it's, a good friend of mine always says, in fact, Mike Field, he says, always talk when, when you're taking the armor off, not when you're putting the armor on, Alex. So uh, you'll, you'll be familiar with that saying, I'm sure. Yeah, I think it's looking okay. But yeah, maybe, maybe we have a follow-up discussion in six months or 12 months, and uh, I, I can tell you whether it's been really good or mediocre or not so good. This has been Episode 63 of Inside COVID-19. The full interviews of the highlights that are featured in this podcast are available separately on the biznews.com website or the biznews app. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.